today. Um, you are about to see some incredible people share some incredible ideas, and I'm happy to have the privilege to share um, a poem with you to start it off. Vancouver, let's find a place to get lost. I'll pay attention and spend time no matter the cost. So listen for a minute and come over to my side. Your landscapes were made for the wild dreaming and wide-eyed. Speak for the mad talent most find hard to like for those who carve their own lane like Berard and Bikes. Yeah, it's summer weather, but the fans can't stand still. Clapping along and rapping songs to buskers on Granville. But music doesn't pay bills, that's the drama you're in. So critical of yourself, you think you're better than him. That's negativity with a positive spin. Like one time, Vancouver, when you felt like rain. At least you teased me with sunshine. I hear what you're saying, music playing over there, but stress less and fess up. Tell me what you're scared of. You do something, it goes wrong. You're not happy, that's bad then. But if you don't do something, then nothing can happen. Your mind likes to roam when you're in the zone, but some days you can't work and feel like you are alone and on stage. You can feel far from home, only feedback you get is from your microphone. When your bedroom was a studio, perfect for practicing, your mom said you were stupid. No, I'm just passionate. Artists, we are proof. We can harvest art from the hardest heart, but the goal feels so close, yet that's the farthest part. And nickels are fickle. You meet dimes and tents, but you don't have to make pennies. You just have to make sense. I know you wake up at sunrise to practice in the mirror, so reflect on the past. She's speaking loud. Hear her. No one will hand you this, so take a chance with it. Stay up and get down, smile and just dance a bit. Do the best you can do and do you. That's what attracts me. I mean, the best is you. It's you that makes you happy. Black sheep of the herd, feeling the heat of the world. Stay stable like steed, take heed of the word. Doesn't matter, the trials are worth whatever the hurt. Vancouver, you don't want to be big, you just want to be heard. Thank you. was Francis Revelo at the 2011 TEDx Terry Talks, and I'm your host, Gordon Caddick. Welcome to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. This week's episode will feature some highlights from that conference, which was held last November. It was our fourth annual TEDx Terry Talks conference and our first ever sellout. It was a tremendously powerful day, so you're in for quite a treat. But this will be just a taste. For the full talks, check out terry.ubc.ca. Today, we'll be featuring some snippets from some talks on Canadian history, HIV testing, body image, journalism, and bipolar disorder. So stay with us. All right, so I want you, again, to think about the things that you do every day. And, uh, you know, immediately the things that come to mind when you go through the things that happen every day of your life are fairly simple. Waking up, eating, sleeping, talking to friends, going to school or work. But there's another thing that we do all the time, and it's consume information, consume information from media. We do it every day, and we do it more than ever before, but we do it passively. We don't think about it. But it's happening. We wake up in the morning... The alarm clock goes off, the radio's on, we listen to that. We go downstairs, we pick up the newspaper, or we're on the bus on our way to work or school. We look through the 24 or Metro or the Georgia Strait. At school or work, we're talking with our friends, we're, going, we're having water cooler talk. We go home, the news is on. Throughout the entire day, we're checking our Twitter account, our Facebook page, 
There are links there about what's happening in the world. We check our email. Someone sent us a link. And I mention all of this because you might not do all these things in one day, but you do at least one of them. Information surrounds us all the time, and people are trying to get information to us. And people are trying to get information to us with a very specific reason and a message. And they're trying to engage you directly in a unique way. So my name is Justin McRoy, and I'm the coordinating editor of the UBC, the student newspaper here at the University of British Columbia. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about the media, audiences, how the two of them are interacting. In the 2009 film Zombieland, it states that the first rule of surviving the zombie apocalypse is cardio, and if there's one thing that I see every day, it's people running. One would think that this massive preoccupation with running was in preparation for the inevitable uprising of the undead. I mean, I myself like to imagine a horde of zombies chasing me whenever I exercise, because fitness is important to survival. How many zombie movies have you seen where the protagonist was fat? There are none. There are, however, a lot of fat zombies, like this guy. <laughs> there we go. Hal obviously didn't use his yoga membership, and Bob here just couldn't run fast enough when he was human. Of course, the, the thin zombies exist as well, because brain parasites, such as the rage virus in 28 Days Later, don't discriminate. Yet, the metaphor of fat, peoples, fat people and zombies, it's not a novel metaphor, is it? For example, Dr. William Campbell Douglas, who is an author, blogger, and he's been practicing medicine for 40 years, claimed that there is a direct causal link between obesity and dementia. And he cited a Boston University study that measured levels of body fat versus brain volume. He goes as far as saying, fat people have little brains. Is that really surprising? You'd have to be missing some brain volume anyway to let yourself get that big and sloppy in the first place. <laughs> he goes on to say that he hopes we've been brushing up on our zombie skills because we're about to be overrun with a lot of fat dementia patients that are going to want to eat everything. Oh, is it, is it on? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's it's great to see such an an eclectic group of students here today. I uh, I myself am an arts majoring in history and English literature. Now, for all of you in arts here today, I'm sure you can identify with the scenario of when you tell someone your major, let's say history, and their response is history. You know you're gonna die in the real world, right? <laughs> ah, ah. It's true. It happens. And it hurts. But <laughs> now usually I, I do the same thing you've done and I just laugh it off. But for some reason, the, the last time this happened to me, it, it really got me thinking. And I had these two images flash in my mind. UBC Souter School of Business. And... Buchanan Tower, UBC's arts building. And this is where I spend most of my time. And it was at that moment that I had my epiphany. Die in the real world? Look at this thing! <laughs> We're dying now! And, and, and we still live in this fictitious world where worth as human beings is measured on a scale where the highest possible grade is a four! <laughs> 
You go into the forestry building and you're met with God's own sauna. You go into Buchanan C and you're met with stairs. You, you, you enter into the Souter School of Business lobby and it looks like one of those first class airport lounges. You go into Buchanan D and you're met with stairs. You, you exit out of the Life Sciences building and it looks like Elton John's private grotto. You, you exit out of Buchanan A and you're met with Ah! <laughs> stairs! <laughs> so, what does this teach us? What does this tell us? Two things. One is that UBC Dean of Arts, Dr. Gage Avril, has an intense fear of having students actually on the ground. <laughs> and two, it's true. And, and two, it's that the more direct of a line your faculty, uh, school, or, or department can draw from you to a profitable career, the more adequate of learning standards you're allowed to insist on. What UBC is showing us with their encouraged segregation of funding is that what you study is only worth something if it's worth Something. Money! And of course, that's what it all comes back to. I work with the STOP HIV AIDS project, which stands for Seek and Treat for Optimal Prevention of HIV AIDS. And it's a three-year pilot program here in BC dedicated to providing access to medicines in vulnerable populations in the downtown east side and in Prince George. And I have a really neat job where I get to be responsible for the education and outreach surrounding rapid HIV testing clinics right here at UBC. And we had our first one just last week, the rapid testing <laughs> clinics. And the response was tremendous. We had students who came up to testing and students who talked to us. And it was just so inspiring to get so much good discussion going on about why talking about HIV is so important. So the UBC is the student paper here. It began in 1918. Uh, and it began when students, all, you know, the few hundred of them that were at this campus at the time, decided to give $2 each for a newspaper. But they didn't give $2 for a newspaper because they thought newspapers were the most wonderful thing in the world and would be forever and ever. It was because back then, if you wanted to get information on what was going on in the world, it had to be from a newspaper. That was pretty much the only way you could find out what was going on. And then in 1995, students voted again to create an independent UBC. And they decided to give $5 each. And again, there were other ways of finding information, but a newspaper was still the most cost-effective way of finding it out. It made the most sense to do that. But now it's 2011, and we still put out a newspaper. But if a university was created today, and... Uh, people said, all right, we're going to create some sort of media group. What is it going to be? Well, there might be a newspaper or a print product around, but it would be seen that people would be giving money to a news organization. It would do a lot of different things. It would have a website, there would be videos, they would be extremely proficient in social media, because that's what the expectations are for people today with their media. 
You know, media is like anything else which is consumer-based. You might try it once or twice. But after that, if you're going to go there again, you're doing it because you have expectations of what you're going to get and people are going to deliver. You know, in 2009, for about two months, we didn't have comments working on our website. People were very upset that they could not type down what they wanted to say about our articles at the end. And they said, how could you do this? This is ridiculous. And we said, we know, we're sorry, our webmaster, we don't have one right now. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you, you know, I, and, uh, but the fact is, they were right. Um, they were right, they had expectations, and we weren't following them. So you think about that, and you think about uh, that, I'm not going to get into this, well, the internet is changing journalism, is journalism in a crisis? People talk about that from time to time. A lot of them are journalists, and they talk about it because their jobs are changing, and people don't like change in their jobs for the most part. Um, but this change is good. It's leveled the playing field. You know, there's this anecdote that Jerry Seinfeld used to do in his stand-up bits, where he would say, isn't it interesting, on the New York Times, it says at the very top, all the news that's fit to print. And somehow, all the news in the entire world, each and every day, fits just to the end of the newspaper, to the final line. There's no more news. That's it. And, of course, we know that's not the case, but for a long time, media was a curator. You had a certain amount of space in your paper or time in the program, and you chose the best stories, and that was it. And you put them out there, you were on top of your mountain, and you said to the masses, this is the news, and they took it. Well, now, of course, that's changed. We can get news from everywhere. Media is less of a curator and more of a helping hand, someone that guides you along the way and tells you this is the information that you need to know, here are ways it can help you, here are links to give you a little bit more context. And that's good. Competition is good in any industry. Did you do really well in a first or second year course? Want to make a difference in the UBC community and school communities around the world? Join Students Offering Support, or SOS, and become a tutor today. Math, accounting, economics, psychology, engineering courses, French and Spanish, statistics, and more. If you aced it, Students Offering Support wants you to help other students ace it too. Check out ubcstudentsofferingsupport.com for more information. My name is Laura, and I am living with bipolar. So I want to offer you today a bit of my story. I want to go beyond the traditional definitions and give you a bit more of the lived experience. Now, I must admit, sometimes it can be frustrating to explain bipolar to those who are not experienced in the same mental skillness as I have. But I'm going to try. I have a friend, let's call him Steve, and Steve is HIV positive. And I asked him once about that moment, sitting in that empty room and finding out that he was HIV positive. And I asked him, what, what did he think? And Steve said, it was the scariest moment of my life. And if you knew Steve and how seriously he takes his words, you would really feel the force of them. But he continued and he explained, and he said, I was terrified. At that one moment, I didn't know what to think. I felt like I was two separate people. One person, a dead person. And one person who was alive but struggling. And all I could think about as this nurse was talking to me was, how do I tell my parents? How do I tell my friends? How do I tell my partner? 
But Steve did tell his parents, and he did tell his friends, and he did tell his partner, and now he tells others about how he lives as an HIV-positive individual, but he lives a full and healthy life. And he explains how he's gone so far past that initial moment, infused with all of his preconceptions and all of his fears. And he explains that that moment it wasn't life-changing for him. What was life-changing for him was when Steve finally married his partner. And you also have this issue that、uh, Dean Starkman of the Columbia Journalism Review calls、uh, running in the hamster wheel, and he brings up a couple points. He says, number one, media is doing more than ever before; they're putting out more content. He uses the Wall Street Journal as an example. In 2000, they published 22,000 articles. In 2008, they published 38,000. So they're doing more and more, but they, like all organizations, are doing it with less. There's cutbacks everywhere. And so you're producing more with less journalists. So they're working more, they're working harder, but they're not fully sure what they're doing. And he says the hamster wheel isn't speed; it's motion for motion's sake. It is a lack of discipline. It's news panic. It's an inability to say no. So whenever you see the Vancouver Sun has a slideshow of Megan Fox, that's the hamster wheel. Anytime you see an article in the Globe and Mail that says, "Will there be an election next month?" and it's the seventh straight month you've seen that story, that's the hamster wheel. Every time you see some、uh, reporter tweeting that a celebrity has died and they actually haven't died, that's the hamster wheel. As a sometimes actor and a costume designer, I'm constantly aware of the word marketability. Now, you can't make art if nobody's buying it, and unfortunately, our audience already knows exactly what it wants. <laughs> There's this joke in community theater that if you're overweight, you're constantly typecast as the mother, the matron, or the hag. It's because we expect to see these archetypal characters as rotund and villainous. If you see a fat Disney character, they're never the protagonist. They're usually the bumbling lackey or the giant sea squid. <laughs> so I can attest to this joke personally, as I've played the mother, Queen Agravaine in Once Upon a Mattress. I've played the matron, Marla Cuthbert, Anne of Green Gables, and I've also played the hag. Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> yes, I did. So, one time, my father asked me, "Why don't you ever play the princess?" We expect a certain look in our protagonists, and it's sometimes very difficult to push the boundaries of what the audience will accept as normal. In the film *Misrepresentation*, it's a 2011 documentary that just came out. It states, "You can't be what you can't see," and this is especially true of fat bodies. Can a fat woman be sexy? Can a fat woman date a thin man without it being a fetish? Can a fat woman play the love interest without it being a comedy, as it's played in *Shallow Hal*? But with these changes have come a few challenges. First one is that now we know what people are reading, and that is terrifying. Because before you could put out an article or a segment on video, assume it was good, assume that people watched it, and that would be the end of that. But now we know what people actually like to look at, and I'll give you some examples.
And these are completely real. These are from the last year of the UBC, and they're the most popular things on our website, the most viewed things. So the most viewed news story of 2011. <laughs> there was a car that crashed into blends. We had a picture of it. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people liked looking at it. Our most popular culture story of the year, did everyone remember when Shia LaBeouf was on campus a couple weeks ago? We put seven pictures of him online. Seven. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. That was the most popular culture story. The most popular sports story was one on StarCraft. We said it was a sport. <laughs> And then people put it on Reddit, and then people were very excited that someone called StarCraft a sport, and thousands of people went to see it. Our most popular video until three weeks ago was hundreds of students in their underwear running around campus and breaking into the hive dive late at night. But then a video that we did in September suddenly got picked up on the internet. It went viral. It went on College Humor. It went on Ebon's World. It went on Gizmodo. And now it's our most popular thing of all time. It has over 150,000 views, and it's this. It is engineers blowing things up. <laughs> what are we to do? Let's use the example that hits closest to home for me. Canadian history. Now, I've watched enough romantic comedies to know that it's always possible to take someone unpopular and turn them popular, and likewise take something unprofitable and make it profitable. Well, what have other faculties done? Whether it's in forestry, pharmacy, and certainly in business school, the answer is simple. A clear, strong focus on privatization. We need to privatize Canadian history, and fast. Each one of these profitable departments on campus have these huge uh, multinational corporations that employ those students. And then those students go on to make the millions of dollars that they give back to UBC, and those are the private donations which UBC has allowed itself to be so dependent on. But who do we in Canadian history have? Right now, Canadian historians have basically one employer, the Academy. And as you can see, the Academy's reception of us has been more or less the same reception of UBC Dean of Arts Dr. Gage Avril's response to my many invitations for him to join my all-male slow-pitch dodgeball league. <laughs> they simply don't care anymore. <laughs> so we must prove ourselves academically viable by proving ourselves financially valuable. Well, how do we go about doing this? I'm glad I've asked myself my own question because I think I'm going to like my answer. <laughs> now, I live in East Vancouver. And if there's, if there's one thing we in East Vancouver know, a lot of you are thinking really offensive things right now. <laughs> now, if there's one thing we in East Vancouver know, it's police auctions. Seriously, these things are everywhere. And do they ever help our dearly beloved Vancouver Police Department make a nice pile of cash? 
Why aren't we, as Canadian historians, doing the same thing? Right now, Canadian historians own one thing, and that's the information we teach slash sell. Now, albeit some people might say we don't necessarily own this information, but those pe people are probably saying that in a Russian accent with a Che Guevara t-shirt on, to which I would say, quiet down, comrade, and keep out of the way of progress. <laughs> If we, as Canadian historians, were to auction off the individual parts of our past to the highest bidder, the financial possibilities are limitless. All I knew was that there were times where I was sad and there were times where I was happy. And the times where I was sad or in depression, it was kind of like this winter state. It was like things were darker or colder. And times of mania are more like summer. There's high energy. Things are bright and fun. I was about 16 when I first began to experience the inexplicable periods of sadness. There were no external reasons for me to feel this way. My mind simply placed me there in this depressed winter state. It wasn't until later on that I began to realize the manic summers which were interesting. And so what I decided to do is I started to track my moods on a calendar. Each day, depending on if I was feeling, if I had higher energy or lower energy, I would place an arrow on that day. I started to notice that there would be persistent upward arrows indicating higher energy for about two weeks. And then there would be a shift into downward arrows, which would last for another two weeks. This was confusing for me. And it was unsettling for my mind, especially in the transition days, going from high to low. I felt out of control in these cycles that I was tossed into. It's scary, and I needed some relief. You, I, we really feel for those who have HIV. But while it's easy to invoke compassion, it's a lot harder to invoke action. Because 33.4 million people are HIV positive. What can I, as one person, do? And we feel overwhelmed, and we feel that it's up to the doctors, the nurses, the clinicians, and the leading scientists to do something. But I'm here to tell you that we can change the face of the illness and it is up to us. Each and every one of us can fight HIV. And one of the most important ways I think that we can do this is to get tested. Testing. Is it scary? Yes. It could mean that we're HIV positive. It could mean that we would have to find out. It could mean that we would have to think about HIV and how it affects us. But testing is so important, because if you get tested, it gets you on essential medications earlier, it stops transmission, and it breaks the stigma about getting tested. I once asked a nurse what it, why she thought it was so important to get HIV testing. And she said, why not? And if you think about it, it really is that simple. I get my eyes checked every year, I get my teeth cleaned every six months, I do my laundry, often enough, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and I get an HIV test yearly. It's as simple as that, just another part of my medical routine. Because we should break past the stigma behind testing, and we should just go and do it. Because while the story of HIV has been written by fear, stigma, and terror for the past 30 years, we can replace it with one of understanding, compassion, and hope. So go, get tested, and know your status. Because your statuses, they will not defeat you. They will not destroy us, and they will not define us. Thank you. Sprouts. It's your 75-cent coffee fix in the sub. It's your source for reasonably priced, creatively named stew and vegan brownies. It's your purveyor of bicycle-delivered local produce. It's also a place where volunteers can realize their vision of responsible business and where like-minded students can explore UBC's food systems. Hark! Sprouts is currently accepting applications for next year's executive board and is encouraging ambitious, creative, and disciplined students from all faculties and year levels to apply. Come by Sprouts in the sub-basement to learn more about our projects and how to get involved. I tried to kick the ball, but my tinny flew right up. I'm red as a bee, cause I'm so embarrassed. Because of UBC's mantra that you only get money if you make money, Louis Riel can go from being hung to well hung. <laughs> Yeah, be offended. <laughs> Japanese internment can go to Japanese interns. <laughs> And finally, residential schools can turn into residential living. Ta-da! Now, some might say that, yeah, it is gross, I agree. Now, some might say that these stories are... integral to our national narrative, our, our sense of self, the very foundation upon which our country is being built. To which I would say, shove off Stalin and keep out of the way of progress. So, what's it like to be manic? Well, it's kind of like wearing really gorgeous heels, like this. And you just walk around and you feel taller. There's our confidence. The There's a direction to it. it. Just things are clear and easy. There are thoughts and ideas that just come so naturally. Ideas, ambitions, hopes, anything is possible. The world is limitless. The trouble comes is when these thoughts don't stop. When it goes beyond control, when you can't will yourself to sleep. Because you can't stop thinking of the creative project that you want to do. tomorrow, or the next trip you want to go on, or your new life plan. Depression is more like slippers. Not the comfy, cozy kind of slipper feeling. It's more of the need to feel safe and secure, that outside of these slippers, it's just not right. And it's kind of awkward walking around in slippers. giving a talk in front of 400 people. 
being depressed amongst classmates and family and friends and roommates. And with depression, there's also comes these kind of winter glasses where things just seem darker. It's out of focus. The lenses are distorted. And it's difficult to see farther ahead. So bipolar is kind of like wearing the depressed slipper on one foot and a hypomanic heel on the other. We need to stop modeling ourselves after these antiquated notions of morality where we think that we must tell the stories of those that have been wronged by the past in order to bring some small semblance of justice in the present and start modeling ourselves after money. And only then will we as history students be able to go out into that real world and make our fortunes. And then we too can come back to UBC and cock-slap them with the multi-million dollar donations that they get off so badly on. And then the university, this university, the University of British Columbia Vancouver campus, will finally allow us to look more like this and less like this. Because what that dichotomy teaches us is we all need to start being more like business students. Less activism, more profit. Less t-shirt, more suit. Less sex, more masturbation. (laughs) Because I I no longer want to fight for the use of the the one electrical outlet in my classes. I no longer want to feel so down when I walk from the side of campus that looks like a five-star sandals resort to the side of campus that looks like a Bogota ghetto. I no longer want to have to time my poops in definite 10-minute intervals so I know there'll be room for me in the bathroom at the Brock Hall Annex. That bathroom is hell, by the way. If we implement these surefire changes, much like a freelancing prostitute, it'll sell itself. Because because I no longer want to die in the real world. I want to live forever. Thank you. Great job. Great job. I really do want to start talking about these things because even in just the title of this talk, you wouldn't believe how many conversations have been started which never would have happened. And that's a beautiful thing because when we start talking about this stuff, it becomes okay. So as I walk around campus... I'm a biology student in my fifth year, and I'm just savoring the last little bit that I've got. And uh, I have classes over in Buchanan and in forestry and other, all over campus. And so I see the slogan that is everywhere, which says that UBC is a place of mind. So it causes me to question, what kind of mind is this? Is it an open mind? Is it a healthy mind? 
Is this a place where my mentally ill mind can be? I wonder, after this, are you going to call me Laura? Or are you going to call me bipolar? Tell me, is this okay? Or do I have to hide? Thank you. So this poem is called Johnny, and I hope you like it. I know this little boy named Johnny. He sits at the back of the class, picking his nose as if digging for gold. Ideas bigger than he seems. He's thought-provoking, but his voice is soft-spoken. I think there's a little bit of little Johnny in all of us. So Johnny, you are not stupid. You are human. And humans think. And humans think differently than other humans. And humans that refuse to accept that humans think differently than other humans are just scared of being human. See, the tough slip slow sweetness into their thoughts like mental molasses. It just takes a bit of waiting. Even fists thrown like rocks or hands wanting to feel something. So if you've got something or truth to say, knock yourself out. Because too often we live on what ifs. What if I said hi? What if I said I'm sorry? What if I intervened? What if I said that wasn't true? What if I mustered up the macho to whisper, I love you? So don't say you live for today. That leaves 24 hours to procrastinate. Say you live for now. And right now, think of all the times you wanted to raise your hand like it was an answer key. And when you didn't have the answer, your conviction was unquestionable. And you became a what if. So what if you opened your mouth like the words escaped you, like the click of your tongue was a whiplash. It scares the words to leave your lips fast, so raise your hand like you're trading baseball cards. And you've got all the rookies. Raise your hand like it's recess. The class is hungry. You know, the only one in class with a bag full of cookies because you, me, him, her, we, we have a little bit of Johnny inside. So I ask him, when no one's listening, hey, what do you want to say? And he says, well, now that you ask... What if our minds were as open as universities? We filled it with our heritage. This alternative language that left our mouths would have choirs all over the world rejoicing in the harmony of our ideas. Journalists would change the headlines to you are exactly what we need because of your audacity to be amazing. What if we exercised our demons and exercised our vocal cords and we all spoke in poetry? And he speaks, and he speaks, and he speaks like he runs on sentences and has soapboxes for shoes. But at least someone other than Johnny knows, because Johnny is not stupid. He is human. And humans think differently than other humans. And humans that refuse to accept that humans think differently than other humans are just scared to bring the ideas at the sides of their head, front and foremost. These are called temples. So give the world something to meditate on. It might or might not become a poem. It might become a song. It might be right. It might be wrong. It might be out of place. Or it might just belong. But never, ever Ever be afraid to speak. Thank you, Ted. You just heard excerpts from TEDx Terry Talks by Paige Zhang, Richard Kemick, Laura Fukumoto, Laura Bain, and Justin McElroy, as well as slam poetry by Francis Arevalo. For the full talks, visit terry.ubc.ca. Special mention to Ratib Islam and Hussein John Muhammad. We meant to feature their talks but didn't get the tapes in time, but you'll be able to see them too on our website. This has been the Terry Project Podcast, produced by Sam Fenn and Molly Dion. 
hosted by me, Gordon Caddick. Join us next time on CITR 101.9 FM and on iTunes. Yes, indeed, that was Terry Talk on... Actually, that was TED Talks on the Terry Project podcast, which happens every alternate week on CITR 101.9 FM. Usually it's an hour long. This 